Welcome to Shanghai Zan, a raw and lively regular debate about China tech, advertising, creativity, platforms, and the intersection of it all. Join us each session for timely and relevant discussions on all things China marketing. We'll be joined by an entire spectrum of China experts, and you can learn more about Shanghai John at our website, johnstation.com. I'm Bryce Witwong, and I'm Ali Kazmi. And Ali, we also like to say that we are also have the pleasure of being sponsored by our friends at Campaign Asia. If you like the show, share it with your friends, or better yet, give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Ali, today. We're taking a bit of a departure from algorithms,、uh, social commerce, digital transformation, all those fun stuff. We're going to talk some rock and roll. We're going to talk China rock and roll with Dr. Andrew Field. He's an associate professor of Chinese history at Duke Quinsan University, which is based in the city of Quinsan, which is just outside of Shanghai. Dr. Field has lived constantly in Shanghai since 2008. And is a noted expert in the city's jazz scene and now the rock scene. He's the author of Shanghai's Dancing World: Cabaret Culture and Urban Politics, 1919 to 1954, and Shanghai Nightscapes: A Nocturnal Biography of a Global City. Andrew is the recent author of Rocking China, a book that traces the rise and spread of indie rock from the rock capital of Beijing to Shanghai and many other cities in China. Through interviews with key players in the scenes over a period of 20 years, Dr. Field explores the meanings of rock music in Chinese society, as well as the many challenges and obstacles to the development of indie rock scenes in the country. I'll post all the links for Professor Field's books in the show notes. And Andrew, welcome back to Shanghai Zan. Thanks, Bryce. I'm really happy to be back. Yeah, it's great, great to have you. I guess Andrew, let's start from the beginning of the indie rock scene in the late '80s and early '90s, during a period you or you refer to in the book as the Chinese New Wave. Out of full disclosure, and I'll put this in the notes, I was a witness of that in 1991.、Uh, I was in a band from Taiwan, and we played a show at Maxim's in Beijing. Remember that place, Ali? Ah,、uh, yes, I do. I remember it very well.、Um... I think I was underage when I, <laughs> and I never really went into they it. They never check IDs. Come on, one of the ever did they ever check your ID in China, growing、uh, up? No, no, they they never checked IDs. But I think it was just I just felt uncomfortable walking into、um, places where you know a lot of the older crowd would hang out. Yeah, I was just underage. You were underage. We played a show.、Uh, it was many bands on the bill. Many bands that actually are in Andrew's book. And towards the end of the show, we did an encore, and Cui Jian got up and sang two songs, and the place went absolutely crazy. It was an amazing experience. It's actually a friend of mine did a YouTube video of the show, and I'll, I'll post it in the notes for everyone to watch.、Uh, but Andrew, could you paint a picture of what the scene was like in the '80s and '90s? Who were the key bands and the influencers, and more importantly, why did it start in Beijing and not Shanghai? That's a lot of questions, so I'll try to field them one by one. Just to add to your story, my first visit to Beijing was in the winter of 1988,、uh, between 88 and 89, and we all know what happened in 1989. So that was obviously a, a very dramatic year for China and the world. And、uh, I was just a college student, so.
you know, I knew nothing about any of this stuff that was going on in the so-called underground. Uh, my version of Beijing was the kind of tourist version of Beijing where you, you go to Badaling because that's the only part of the Great Wall that you've ever heard of. And you go to the Forbidden City and a few other places, maybe Temple of Heaven, Tiananmen Square, of course. Um, but while I was walking around uh, town that winter, uh, little did I know that there were places like Maxim's. I think that was around in the late 80s as well. Um, and there was this underground rock and roll scene. And I had never heard of Cui Jian. I didn't hear of Cui Jian until... I think uh, graduate school, around 1991, a good friend of mine gave me a cassette tape of Cui Jian. You know, I had been listening to a lot of Chinese music because I've always been, when I started studying Chinese in college, uh, one of the ways that I approached learning the language was through music. And uh, friends would give me, you know, Chinese friends would give me cassette tapes of their favorite Chinese tunes. And it was usually something around... Deng Lijun, you know, the great pop star from Taiwan in the 70s and 80s. So it was this kind of sweet, uh, very beautiful, sweet uh, pop music. And there were others like Luo Dayo, also from Taiwan, uh, incredible folk folk singer, and Qi Qin, and these other great uh, artists, Qi Yu, Qi Yu, who, who did uh, Gan Lan Shu, right, the San Mao song. And so I was familiar with that stuff. I was familiar with kind of Chinese folk and pop music and music going back to the 30s in Shanghai. It was all kind of traced back to the 30s in Shanghai. And that's where I, that's that's what I ended up studying for my, you know, doctoral dissertation was the roots of this kind of popular music in the cabaret culture of Shanghai. But I di I didn't know anything about Chinese rock and roll. I did spend that summer in Taiwan. But I don't remember going to any Chinese rock shows or Taiwanese rock shows. So I was very naive about what was going on. So in 1991, this friend gave me this cassette tape. I was in New York at the time studying at Columbia. And it was just, even the first listen, it was just mind-blowing to hear Cui Jian. I had never heard anything like that. And just his voice, the sound of the music, the, the blending of what seemed to be some traditional Chinese music, like with the Suona, which I later found out was Liu Yuan, famous, uh, now he's a famous jazz musician as well as a veteran of Cui Jin's rock band. And, and also the meaning and the message of his song, Yi Wu Soyo, which means like, I, I have a whole lot of nothing, is kind of one of the ways you can translate it. Um, and it was just epic. Ever since then, I became more and more interested in Chinese rock music. So, of course, then you go on to these other bands that were big at that time, like Tang Dynasty, Tang Chao, Hei Bao, Black Panther, Dou Wei, those, those guys who were, they were the pioneers of rock and roll in China in the 80s and early 90s. Um, going back to your, your visit, uh, to uh, Beijing and playing at Maxim's. That's such an amazing experience. You got to treasure that because I think Maxim's was at the epicenter of a lot of creative culture in Beijing that was kind of sizzling underground, especially after 1989. And there were artists and musicians and filmmakers and just about anybody who was creative 
hung out at Maxim's at one time or another. So that was a very precious time period because, you know, we like to say that after 1989, all of that stuff went deep underground. And that's kind of the mythology that we like to perpetuate. Um, the reality, I think, was a little more complicated. You know, there's always been a bit of a cat and mouse game between authority in China and the creative cultures. Um, because ever since 1942, when Mao Zedong gave his famous Yan'an talks on literature and art, saying that they have to follow the mass line, art has always been a controversial uh, undertaking in China because uh, it wasn't really until the 1980s that artists could begin to express themselves tentatively and uh, the whole art field and music field kind of started to open up and blossom like a flower opening up. But we know what happened to the hundred flowers, right, in 1957. So there's always that uh, notion that if you go too far with your art or your music, it's going to get cut. Um, there will be consequences. Uh, so that's why I say it's always been a cat and mouse game. And this was no less true of the indie rock scene that I witnessed in the 2000s. Um, but everything was percolating and bubbling up in the 1990s. I went back to Beijing in 96. I had my first research stint in Beijing. I was using the Capital Library and the National Library uh, of Beijing, and I was there for six months. That was an amazing time period um, because things were really just starting to open up, more foreigners coming to China. Uh, they were bringing their own culture and their own music, and they wanted to hear good music. There were a lot of bars and opening up where uh, foreign bands could play music, especially in the Sanlitun Embassy District. O over on the uh, west side of town in the Haiden District, where the universities are all located, um, it was in that area that the Chinese punk rock scene really started to blossom in the 90s. So I, I would, you know, back then uh, the, there was really, I think there was one subway line. So you didn't really take the subway. <laughs> You had to take a mianbaochu, a bread box van, around town. <laughs> and it took like an hour to get from one end to the other. But uh, we, we would, uh, me and my friends would go out to the west side, to the university district, and hang out at places like Solutions Bar on the west gate of Beida, Peking University. Um, and there were a bunch of others. There was the Blue Jay. There, was, there were all these uh, clubs that were that were happening in the in the west side with a lot of students and it was a fun place to be and i do remember witnessing chinese rock bands performing so that was the first time that it, that i saw like real live chinese rock bands and these were like young kids probably college students or 20 somethings growing their hair along grabbing an electric guitar and guess what they were playing of course they were playing covers of nirvana because Nirvana was the band in, in the Chinese emerging punk scene at that time. Everybody uh, was in love with Kurt Cobain and Nirvana and his tragic story. I think there was something that these Chinese youths kind of latched onto about his, this, the tragic story of Kurt Cobain. I, I went to some shows and it always seemed like everyone is either Kurt Cobain or Sonic Youth. And it was just that... 
there was never like an optimistic poppy happy band. They were all like doom and gloom, <laughs> minor chords and young Chinese woman lead singer. She probably weighed about 70 pounds, you know, had hair on her face over her eyes, just completely covered and sing really depressing, depressing songs. Yeah, there was a, there was a lot of that. And so they were doing covers, but. You know, then the next question is, where were they getting their music from? Where were they getting their musical ideas? Because back then in China, there were no, not like in Taiwan. And Ta- Taiwan was a very open place uh, in those days. And I remember when I was in Taiwan studying Chinese in Taipei from 93 to 94, I, I used to go to Tower Records all the time. And there were places like the Roxy, uh, 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 I think it was on Luosifulu, where they had like a collection of thousands of record albums and Chinese DJs or Taiwanese DJs who knew them all, who knew much more about about uh, this music than you or I. Um, but in China, that was just impossible. There were no record shops selling anything other than maybe Michael Jackson or George Michael. <laughs> um, actually, incidentally, like George Michael was the first pop rock star to come to China in 1985 and perform with his band Wham! in Beijing. So that was a seminal moment. Why do you think this happened in Beijing? Why not at Shanghai? First of all, Beijing had, at that time, in the 80s and early 90s, Beijing definitely had the largest concentration of foreigners in China. People were coming from all over the world to live in Beijing because that's where the diplomatic compounds were located. So all the embassy people and as well as journalists, because if you were a journalist by trade, you wanted to be in Beijing. That's where that was the center of politics. That's where Tiananmen had happened. That's where the, you know, the next big news story was going to come from. So diplomats, journalists and business people, because um, if you wanted to do business in China, you had to rub shoulders with Chinese officialdom. So whereas Shanghai was a, a commercial city by its kind of nature, and it, had, and it hadn't really come out of its thaw of, uh, you know, it had been kind of it had it had transformed from a uh, kind of colonial uh, center of culture and arts and consumption in the 30s into a production center of, uh, you know, happy workers by the 1980s. It wasn't ripe for the, that kind of revolution. Even jazz took a long time to gain a, gain a foothold back in Shanghai. Um, so I'd say Shanghai didn't really start to blossom until the late 1990s, which is when I lived in Shanghai. I saw that blossoming, and I documented that in my in my book, Shanghai Nightscapes. But rock wasn't as big a part of the scene in Shanghai. There was definitely there were some rock bands and and a few nascent clubs. But Beijing definitely was the rock epicenter of China. And you also have to remember that Beijing not only was it the political center, but it was hands down the the center of arts and culture in China as well. So all the great uh, art institutes, the uh, Drama Academy, all the great filmmakers uh, from that generation in China, they all lived and worked and taught or were taught in Beijing. Um, So Beijing had attracted the best and the brightest in all the creative fields. Um, And music was one of them. You know, you needed foreigners because uh, rock music was a foreign music. 
and uh, it had to be you had to have foreigners introducing rock music and it goes back to what i was saying that chinese people had no access to the media of rock music um they didn't it wasn't played on the radio per se it wasn't you didn't you couldn't go to record shops at that time except for the underground shops that sold uh daco cds the cut cds and that's where musicians of all stripes in China started to started to build up their collections of music and go beyond the Michael Jackson and George Michael you know albums that were being sold in legitimate stores. I lived in Beijing from 1996 and I remember going to Wudaokou in which is the university area around Wudaokou and Chengfulu. Right around there there would be an open market under a tent and you'd have young people that would be sent selling all kinds of CDs and all of them i never really understood and maybe we can talk about that today but i i never understood why they were cut and how those CDs got to beijing uh in the first place yeah uh, but just so that everyone understands as well when you have a cut CD it's basically you know it's a, it's the periphery of the compact disc um you know that's been sawed Um, and I guess you lose maybe the last track, but you know tracks one to ten or tracks one to nine are completely audible. It's just the last track that's missing. Do we know why? Yes, we do. In fact, my colleague Jeroen de Kluet, he's uh, Dutch. He actually wrote a whole book about this phenomenon. He called uh, called China with a cut. And what was happening in the 1990s was uh, this was um, cor- basically corporate trash. China was then and for a long time afterwards. kind of the trash collector of the world. So all all of this uh, corporate refuse refuse um was coming to China to be reprocessed somehow. So this was considered trash, but as you said, 90% of the CD could still be played. In some cases 100% because the cuts didn't always didn't always hit the CD itself. It might hit the case but not the CD. So if you got lucky, you could play the entire disc. and as long as the cut wasn't too uh severe uh where you stood to damage your CD player um you could you could play it or most of it and so of course the chinese underground economy was turning trash into products this became a pro- a, a profitable product even if you were paying like i think people were paying like 5 RMB or 7 RMB or something per per CD which was a lot of money back then but that's just like a dollar US And so a dollar US to get a rare album of music that you never would have any access to otherwise. And that's where bands like Sonic Youth start coming into play. Green Day, you know, all these bands that were kind of popular in America in the 90s were starting to get popular amongst the musical intelligentsia. There was a gray market for these Daco CDs and I recall that I think it was in the East Gate of Tsinghua University the top university in China certainly the top technical university there was a a shop selling these CDs now going back to Wudaoko every time every time I hear that name it just gives me a thrill because Wudaoko was just this incredible crossroads of culture because it was in the middle of the university district you had thousands of chinese university students and also thousands of koreans and maybe a, a a smaller number of 
foreigners from other countries around the world. So Wudaoko really became a hotspot for, for youth culture in China. And I think a lot of movements and a lot of trends came out of the Wudaoko area between the 90s and 2000s. And that's where some of the, uh, the most important rock clubs were located as well. One of the things I noticed when I was there in 91, and we, we were able to hang out with a lot of the, the, the musicians, basically, Cui Jian was more than just the father of rock. He was the one that was actually making money and to the point where he had purchased instruments and none of the other artists were able to afford their own instruments. So what you found in a lot of these shows is that they would hand their the bass and the guitar to the next band and they're always using the same instruments uh, because they didn't have their own own stuff. What was the transformational point when they stopped playing Nirvana and Sonic Youth songs and they started doing original music? Was there a few bands that started doing this or was it just people got sick <laughs> sick of covers or what was the main catalyst for the, the transformation? You know, ever since the days of Cui Jian in the 1980s, Chinese rock musicians had been composing and performing their own music, their own original songs. And I think with these young proto-punk bands in the 1990s, it was only a matter of time before they stopped uh, being cover bands. Um, and once they'd learned the ropes of you know how to play guitar and drums and bass and stuff, they would start experimenting with their own styles some of the most influential bands in the punk and post-punk scene were emerging in Beijing in the late 1990s. So bands like Brain Failure, New Pants, a band called Subs, which I followed a lot in the book, but they, they came a little bit later. And there was also a guy named Xie Tian Xiao, also known as XTX, who came out of that scene. He became a major rock and roll star uh, much later, but he kind of started out in the shouty, you know, punk scene in in uh, Wudaoko area in the late 1990s. What you really needed to have the, to make this transformation effective was you needed venues that were dedicated to Chinese rock bands playing their original stuff. Um, so you needed dedicated rock clubs, and I think the first dedicated rock clubs started to come out in the by the end of the 1990s. I think there was the Scream Bar, uh, the What Bar. Anybody who was in Beijing at that time will tell you those were the places where they saw the first real authentic Chinese punk rock bands playing. So I came back to Beijing in 2006 to visit. I went to a club called Yugong Yishan. It was a rock club in the Sanlitun area, in the Gong, uh, across from Gongti, the workers' stadium. And it was a gringy, gritty, you know, rock club in an otherwise derelict neighborhood that was slated for destruction, right? Because they were rebuilding that whole area. I think I witnessed one of the last performances at that club. And there was a band called Chunqiu, Spring and Autumn, which is an ancient uh, period of Ch Chinese history. Um, and it turns out that uh, the guitarist, one of the guitarists for the band, Kaiser Guo, was very seminal in the rock scene because he had been part of uh, the band Tang Dynasty going back to the late 1980s. And because he's American Chinese, he he he's able to articulate 
the the scene and its development in a in a very fluid way. So I got a I got kind of an encapsulation from him that night about where the scene had come from, where it was going. Now he's he's more of a metalhead. Uh, he wasn't so much into the indie rock scene, but he definitely acknowledged that there were hundreds of bands performing Beijing's clubs on any given night, and that it was a really exciting scene with a lot of variety and a lot of potential. I came back to live in Beijing in the summer and fall of 2007, and that's when I really did a deep dive into the rock scene. And by then there were several clubs that were uh, dedicated to these original uh, rock bands. And I would say like 95% of them were entirely Chinese. And they were coming from all over China. In your book, you mentioned a guy named Michael Pettis. He was a professor of finance. He set up a club. What is his contribution to the indie rock scene in China? He had a very, very strong influence on the development of the rock scene in Beijing at that time period. Um, he'd, he uh, had come from New York. We had a, we had a connection because we're both Columbia alumni. Um, we had this kind of instant connection and I, I actually spent a lot of time talking to him. Uh, he was running a club called D22, and that was located also in the Wudaoko area, um, down the road, and and I think it was across the campus of Tsinghua University. But he was teaching at Peking University, and he still does, I, I believe. He's still a professor of finance at Peking University. That's and and that's how he's known in the world. Right, everybody knows him as the as a guru of the Chinese economy. Going back to the ni- early 1980s, I think he had been involved in in a club in Lower Manhattan that uh, that uh, was um, showcasing you know rising talents like Sonic Youth. I believe Sonic Youth played at his club, and all all this is in my book. So he had had a, a history himself of of nurturing kind of post-punk scenes in New York, and he wanted to bring that to China. Uh, so he set up uh, D22. I mean, I think he came in when the scene was already growing. There were other clubs around, uh, but he wanted to create a club that musicians could be really comfortable in and uh, could experiment and not worry about having to make money. So he he supported these bands. He he liked to joke that the money he he earned in his day job, he would lose at night in the club. He really was putting a lot of effort into and a lot of uh, investment into support these bands and help them grow at a critical time period uh, when the scene really needed that. Now he wasn't the only one. There were there were a lot of others, a lot of other people, Chinese and foreigners who were supporting the scene. But I think, you know, his club really rose in prominence during the time that I was there in Beijing. And D22 attracted some of the more, I think, avant-garde bands that were in the scene, like Carsick Cars is one good example. I think D22 kind of became the second home for the Karsik, for the band Carsick Cars, uh, fronted by Zhang Shouwang. Anybody who knows Chinese indie rock today knows the band Carsick Cars because they became so important in the, the Chinese indie rock scene and they're kind of celebrities uh, in, in that scene today. Is it safe to say that this was a very niche, small thing? These bands were not doing nationwide 
tours. There's no, there was no Lollapalooza. Uh, these were small shows. What was the government reaction to this the whole time? Did they regulate it, or they just? It was that time in China where it was a small group of kids having fun. They just kind of looked the other way, or uh, was that not the case? Of course, the government always regulates culture. The Ministry of Culture, it, any, anything that uh, that goes into the media world is going to be regulated by the Ministry of Culture. So, um, if they wanted to cut an album, produce an album, and then distribute it in China, all the lyrics on the album had to go through uh, the basically the censorship bureau. So they they all had to they all had to pass the censorship bureau. Uh, so the lyrics couldn't be too in your face political or you know any anything that smacked of um, going against the, the the government in China would would be immediately flagged. Th- this is a trend that goes back thousands of years in Chinese history, because artists and poets and writers have always played this cat and mouse game with a with a very authoritarian government, and so they come up with coded ways to get beyond the censorship, where people people who know the meaning, the true meaning of the lyrics can kind of see beyond the, uh, the surface level. And that happens in, I think, all forms of arts in China up till today. And I think the government tacitly recognizes that and knows that the government also has its own boundaries. There's only so far you can go uh, before the people are going to get really pissed off. They need places to vent, right? Everybody knows that in China. That's the public secret. So I think up up to the maybe highest levels of government, um, there was always kind of a tacit notion that this this is okay as long as it's still kind of under the radar. Small, like you said, it's a small it's a small scene. There are these clubs um, that a very small number of people go to, and once in a while there are larger festivals where the bands perform. But all but but I think again it, for the bigger festivals, the music had to be vetted by authorities. Um, before they performed. Um, so they would allow these scenes to, um, if not flourish, at least you know survive in the capital city. And, and saying all that, I don't have a direct conduit to the government and what it was thinking. So a lot of this is just my own educated guess, guesses about um, how it operated. I, I, I did interview a lot of people and talk about censorship issues and they would all say yeah we have you know all all our songs have to go through this censorship process and be vetted by the ministry of culture before we can put them on our albums and sell them in china um so that was like a constant challenge i think for a lot of bands clearly spend a lot of time um in putting together the book but what were some of the challenges i guess uncovering uncovering connecting or piecing all of this history together and having it published, what were some of the challenges that you faced in writing the book? Yeah, that's a great question. Thank you for asking that, Ali. I think the, the first and perhaps biggest challenge of this project was that I had, I did, when I started it, I did not intend it to be a book. So usually as an academic, you go out with this intention, I'm going to write a book about such and such. I did co-write an article about the punk scene that got published in a journal in 2008. Um, so I did that. I, I did have the intention to write something about the scene. Uh, mainly, my intention was to make a film. I was uh, filming the scene and just go, you know, going to all these concerts. I went to hundreds of concerts, uh, filmed hundreds of bands, and filmed in festivals, not just in Beijing but also in Shanghai, 
I also went to Wuhan. As the book reveals, I followed a band. I don't want to say too much about it because I want people to read the book, but I followed a band called Subs to uh, Hunan and to their hometown of Wuhan in Hubei province. So I was just, I was everywhere I went, I was filming the scene. I was getting up on stage. I was getting behind the stage. I was filming the crowds. I was filming the bands in action. And then I was interviewing bands and I was interviewing people like Michael Pettis, who were, you know, the club owners and the movers and shakers behind the scene. And all that was to make a film. And later, when I was living in Shanghai, I partnered with a, with a friend, Judd Wilmot, and we made the film. Um, and we've been screening it to different audiences, it got into film festivals uh, around the world. And um, I've screened it at a lot of universities and in a lot of, like, uh, uh, you know, small locations in Shanghai and other places. And always got a lot of good feedback. And people were always asking, oh, well, what happened to these bands? What happened to the scene? What, you know, where did this all go? And so I finally decided, well, I'm just going to write a book so that the next time I uh, screen the film, I can just give them a copy of the book and say, all the answers are here. And I thought to myself, well, I've got a lot of material. I was blogging you know, very actively blogging while I was uh, following the scene over, you know, years. I have years worth of blogs about different concerts, different events and such. So I had that material and I had all the film footage that I had collected. Um, so I thought I have I have all the, the basis for, um, you know, of research for this book. Now I just have to write it. Um, the basic structure of the book actually is similar to the structure of the film. So some of the chapters of the book line up pretty well with segments of the film. So I, I do have to give a shout out to my friend Judd, who, um, you know, we worked together to, uh, to figure out the story of the film. Um, so part of the, I think the architecture of this book goes to my collaboration with Judd um, on the film. But uh, the writing of it, it, it actually ended up taking a lot more time, a lot more effort to write it and publish it than I thought. So these kind of projects, you start because you're excited about it and you're like, oh, I can get this out in a year or two. It's going to be great. And then it ends up taking like five years, you know, or longer um, because you run into impediments um, along the way. And you, and you really have to, f I think one of the keys to a book like this, which is such a niche subject and uh, such a, you know, it's not meant to be an academic book. So it's meant to be read by, quote unquote, lay readers, civilians. But on the other hand, it's such a niche topic um, and in its way esoteric that uh, you really need to find the right publisher who understands the nature of the book and its importance and its place in history and so on. And that was uh, Graham Earnshaw. So going back to um, Bryce's story about playing at Maxime's, Graham Earnshaw uh, was one of the progenitors of the Chinese rock scene in the 1980s because he formed, at least he claims, and I, I believe this, the first expatriate rock and roll band in Beijing in the 1980s. I think they called themselves the Peking All-Stars. Young musicians like Cui Jian and Liu Yuan would go to their, would go to their performances and uh, they started hanging out and introducing. And so Graham and the others started introducing Cui Jian and other emerging rock and roll stars, um, all of this music from the 1980s. 
and and even earlier, you know, 60s and so on. Graham started out as a journalist, but eventually he started his own publishing uh, com- company. We we had known each other for many years. Uh, he was also one of the uh, kickstarters of the jazz scene in Shanghai in the 1990s. So I had known him all the way back then. I started having conversations with Graham about this this book, which was kind of sitting on my hard drive, and not and I didn't know where to farm it too. But I started talking to Graham, like, hey, maybe maybe he would be interested. Um, and sure enough, he uh, he put his full support behind the book, and uh, not only uh, published it, but he also carefully edited the book himself. So it was it was a collaborative process to get the the uh, the book out in print, uh, which we did in May of this year. Um, so there were a lot of challenges, you know, and it, it's um, and I think the next challenge is uh, marketing the book to a wider audience. So I'm really trying to get the word out there. I haven't been to all the clubs that you mentioned, but I mean, off and on been to, to see indie bands. And I think through the years, the quality of the music got really good. Uh, I saw a lot of these shows at festivals, often relied on our good friend Archie Hamilton, who had the Concrete and Grass Festival uh, in Shanghai. And of course, Modern Sky Strawberry Festival, which is still going on. Uh, granted, you know, you go to these shows in a city of 25 million people, uh, you'd have maybe 30,000 people would show up. So, I mean, it wasn't like massive, uh, but there were always the big indie bands that played. What was the importance of music festivals to the rock scene? Um, definitely festivals played a, played a big role in bringing rock to a wider audience. I want to go back to your first observation about how how the bands themselves improved. And that was definitely something that I saw as well. Uh, when I was in Beijing in the mid-2000s, you know, a lot of these bands had only formed for a year or two and they were still kind of cutting their teeth and learning their chops. Uh, but they were already emerging in that scene as stars like Hedgehog, uh, which is an amazing band. Um, and again, anybody who knows indie rock in China would know Hedgehog. Um, it was a, at that time was a trio. Uh, there was a, a male uh, guitarist and a male bass player and a female drummer named Adam. Um, and the and she was considered one of the best drummers in the scene. A very small girl, but incredibly energetic. And she would sing uh, these har- kind of harmonic or back and forth vocals with the lead singer Zio. That was just an amazing thing to like see and hear. Um, and so even back then, even though they were a fairly new band, they were already like really consolidating their sound and uh, their style. And later on, they became a huge band in that in in the indie rock scene. And they were playing in festivals. So in I think 2011, May Day holiday. That's when a lot of the rock festivals are held. And I was uh, I was in Beijing for the Strawberry Festival, which was out in Tongzhou Canal Park. And I remember seeing Adam. I, I actually hooked up with them during the festival because I needed to get their signatures, their release forms for the for the film. And then I saw them performing on stage. And Adam, this little diminutive drummer, she she was actually singing and playing guitar. And the camera was on her, and she was um, 
blown up on this very large screen over an audience of 10,000 people. And I was thinking, yep, that this band has arrived. Going back to your point, the festivals, whether it was Archie Hamilton, who I think I mentioned in the book, I definitely drop his name in the book, um, his Concrete and Grass Festival, uh, kudos to Archie. I, I know he tried incredibly hard to, to build up a, a festival scene here in China. There was the Strawberry Festival, which I think originally was the Modern Sky uh, Festival. There was the Midi Festival. And then, most miraculous of all, when I was in Beijing in 2007, in September 2007, there was the Beijing Pop Festival. And this was held in Chaoyang Park over, I think, uh, three days, two days, three days several stages in the park but they had invited some of these the top rock acts from around the world to perform along with the local heroes and so one of them was Nine Inch Nails I saw Nine Inch Nails Trent Reznor performing his operatic style in front of a crowd of thousands maybe tens of thousands of of people in Chaoyang Park in Beijing um, that would be unthinkable today. Also, we uh, Public Enemy. Can you imagine? Public Enemy was playing on the stage in Beijing at the at the pop festival to a crowd of thousands. People were crowd surfing. There was a VIP section. They had very like obviously fenced off the VIP section to keep the hoi polloi out. And everybody who was beyond the fence was like that much further away. I mean, the VIPs. There weren't that many of them. So it was obvious that this was a policing gesture and people got pissed off and a lot of young guys started to crowd surf their way to try to like throw people over the fence so that they could get in the VIP area or they were climbing the fence and the police were just constantly pushing them back and pushing them back. And it was like, God, these police or guards or whoever they were, the security, they have a tough job (laughs) you know, because these foreigners are crazy. (laughs) Um, But it was... uh, you know, Public Enemy, Tsui Jian played that night. Uh, that was an incredible and very unique event, and, and it never happened again. Uh, but now the festivals are back. Um, but I don't think there will be anything again like the Beijing Pop Festival of 2007. One of the things you mentioned in that was you just can't imagine that now. Take us up to 2023. What's the indie music scene like? Now that COVID is at least temporarily subsided, are we seeing... Western bands coming back into China. I know that's not necessarily the, maybe the catalyst, but at least it influenced heavily the Chinese rockers from having those shows where they could collaborate. But what is it like now? Is it still, is it coming back? Is it less than it was before? What's the temperature of the scene? I think it's all starting to come back. I'm trying to, be, I'm trying to be optimistic about it. I think it is a matter of time be- before uh, foreign performers are able to get the proper permissions to come and perform in China. And, and what I like to say is, you know, China does have its, uh, its hiccups when it comes to opening up to the world. I mean, ever since uh, the 1980s, it's been kind of uh, fits and starts and there are occasional campaigns. In the 80s, it was the spiritual pollution campaigns. Now they're a little bit more subtle in their branding of these campaigns, <laughs> you know, because they don't want to piss off foreigners. 
Yeah, back in 2008, you might recall that, you know, that was the year of the Olympics. It was a very sensitive time for Beijing and for China. And I believe the artist Bjork was invited to uh, perform in China. And I was at the show. I, I, I remember the song and did not hear it. In fact, it was a CNN reporter that w- was the whistleblower. And because, frankly, no one in the audience uh, had had heard heard that statement. And to a certain extent, uh, it probably would have gone unnoticed except for the fact that the the CNN reporter had had heard it. Well, shame on you, CNN, because you you really um, you set China up for an adversary relationship to foreign rock music. So after that, I think the Chinese government was a lot more cagey about uh, about bringing international rock stars to China. I, I saw Bob Dylan in 2011 in Shanghai. Apparently, he was asked not to talk, but he doesn't. Apparently, but it wasn't a problem because he doesn't talk anyway. He just plays his music, and it was a great concert. And his singing is like talking. So, yes, <laughs> he doesn't really sing; he just it, talks. <laughs> that's right. All his stories are in his songs. But apparently, like, there were certain songs that he wasn't allowed to play. Uh, allegedly, um, the the uh, political protest songs, which which he doesn't really play anyway. So I think for him it wasn't like a big accom- it wasn't a huge accommodation, <laughs> and and there have been other uh, big bands, uh, you know, big acts coming to China over the years. But of course, COVID killed all that. Uh, COVID has just been a total disaster for uh, for music, for especially foreign bands. On the other hand, and and I also make this point about the jazz scene. In a way, the COVID period also allowed Chinese musicians and and bands to to really flourish and prosper because there was less competition Uh, so in the short run i think it gave them a lot more exposure and access now this you know again the covid zero covid policy was very disruptive to music scenes and and uh, a lot of clubs closed a lot of a lot of bands folded over that time period there was a lot of depression amongst bands in that in the scene during the zero covid period and um you know concerts would be canceled suddenly so it was a really you know for all of us it was a very disruptive and very depressing time period to go through um very high price that we had to pay for the zero covid policy but now that it's over i think the bands are re-emerging and i'm really hopeful that they'll start letting international uh, uh, rock acts and other musicians to come back to China because I think that's that's so important for the health for the long term health of any music scene. You need a global flow of talent and you know in and out of these scenes. Uh, they need to be reminded what the best of the best in the world are and what level and standard they perform to um, because you know otherwise there's the local scenes get a sense of complacency. You know, because they're they're the they're the big fish in a small pond. Um, but once you open that up to the ocean, you know, it reminds me of the story of the of the frog in the well, the ancient parable that uh, I think Zhuangzi, the Chinese philosopher, taught, told about the frog in the well. He thinks he's the king of the king of the world because he's the biggest creature in the well, and all the other creatures are like tadpoles and minnows. 
And then all of a sudden, a tortoise sticks its head into the well and says, Hey, frog, what are you doing all the way down there, you little guy? The frog's like, What the hell are you? And the tortoise says, I'm, I'm a tortoise, and I, uh, and I come from the ocean. What's the ocean? Well, let me tell you all about it. So I, I feel that that's kind of, you know, a nice, para, a nice analogy for the, the local scenes. Because unless, they, unless they're sharing a stage with the best of the best in the world they're they're not gonna they're not gonna see how high the bar is that's great i guess we're almost uh towards the end of the show but before that we are we're ready for our a b test ali are we ready that's right uh, i'm gonna throw maybe nine ten keywords at you whatever comes whatever is top of mind feel free to talk about it or explain yourself i'm gonna go ahead and start uh or wild in the snow Ooh, that's a tough one. I mean, Iwo Soyo is, is the classic, but Wild in the Snow is such a great song. I'm going to go with B. Um, and that's also a song that appears in our film, Running Wild in the Snow. Love that song. Is it in the, the mixtape? No. Um, I think we put one Sui Jin song in the mixtape, and I think that was Hua Fang Guniang, which is also one of my absolute favorites of Sui Jian. Yu Ying Tang or D22? That's so unfair. <laughs> <laughs> You're really putting me on the spot here. Because Yu Yintang is such an important club in the Shanghai scene over many, many years. D22 was more short-lived. Um, I- I'm going to say D22 just for the sake of the of, of the book. But you got to give a shout-out to Zhang Haisheng and Yu Yintang for carrying out that club for decades now. Major impact on the rock scene. Uh, Mao Livehouse or Yu Gong Yishan? In that case, I'd probably go with Mao Livehouse. I just saw so many amazing concerts there and festivals. And Mao Livehouse, there was something very unique and special about it because it was in the Gulo area and it was kind of in this abandoned theater um, that felt like it was a, a fire hazard. <laughs> but on the other hand... It was like this big black box that you would go into and and just have these amazing concerts by some of the best po- punk and post-punk bands in the Beijing scene. Subs or Carsick Cars? Ooh, of, of course my personal favorite is Subs. So I got to go with A. Um, but as I said, you know, Carsick Cars are also a great band. Heavy metal or hip-hop? That's an interesting question. I You know... Confessedly, I've never been that into either of those genres. <laughs> so, if I had to choose, oh God, I guess for me the epic grandeur of heavy metal, just the over the top, the over the topness of heavy metal, kind of, you know, uh, I'd have to go with a new pants or hedgehog. Um, I would definitely go with Hedgehog. Uh, I know New Pants is a very popular band, and I've seen them in concert several times. They're fun, but I think Hedgehog is more driving. I think they're they're more. They were uh, since the beginning. They were more on the cutting edge of of uh, rock music in China, and you just gotta love Adam the drummer. On stage live or WeChat live? I'm not sure what on on stage live. What. Do, what do you so mean going it? to a live concert or watching someone on live broadcast on your phone? No, nothing could ever substitute for for a live concert. That's uh, you know, and and that's I think because we're we're in this media world and everything's being filtered through the media, we sometimes forget that the most powerful experience of music is being 
there in the same space with the people who are making the music and having a almost like a sacred connection to them and to the music. There's nothing that can replace that. Apple Vision Pro or on-stage live music? <laughs> oh, man. Um, yeah, exactly. You, you, again, you make my point. So nothing, nothing, can, uh, nothing can make up for live face-to-face contact with people, with musicians, with artists, with artworks. Yeah. I talked to someone the other day and we were talking about how how um you know how the world is built on frequencies and uh, and the frequency of the music and the people around you i mean I th- i'm sure that that also kind of adds to what you call the aura of uh, and and that gets lost in uh, in the delivery of of, of song and, and audio guitar or bass well i'm a guitar player so i i'd have to go with guitar it's obviously a much more versatile instrument but you got to respect the great bass players they they keep the ball rolling for everybody. Beijing or Shanghai? Final question. <laughs> Shanghai is my town. Shanghai, I, I, I like to say, you know, I mean, yeah, I, I that again, you've caught me in a very difficult question. Um, if, if it comes to life, Shanghai hands down. Um, if it comes to experiencing the best of rock in China, Beijing was the place. I can't say it is anymore, but it certainly was in its heyday. That's great. Andrew, thank you for being on the show and for the insights you shared with us on the Chinese indie rock scene. Uh, we'll post links to the book as well as the playlist that we talked about that will include some of your favorite uh, f- favorite rock picks. Thanks, Bryce. And thank you, everyone, for joining us on today's episode. Join us in a few weeks for another exciting show. And to all the listeners, until then, have a great day. 